and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm your host, Jake Novak, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY. I also have a Facebook page. Just look me up, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Uh, for any questions you might have about any one of the programs that you hear, if you go on the Nachum Siegel Network uh, webpage, you can find not only the tape version of this show, but the all 26 now. This is the 26th uh, ep- version or, or installment of Novak Now. You can do all those things if you have any questions, challenges. Uh, keep it respectable, please, and I will try to answer. And you can also follow um, my running commentary on the, the news of the week, events of the week, or any ideas that are popping into my mind. Um, so the theme of, of the program today is something that I believe for a long time. I don't know if I'm the first person to ever come up with this particular idea. I wouldn't be surprised if, I, if I'm not. But it's something that I say to people very often, and that is the following phrase, which is, there is no such thing as a non-religious person. And by that I mean, I don't mean, by that I don't mean, oh, everyone is either a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist. I, I don't mean that. I don't mean that everyone is really secretly or publicly a devoted member of a particular religion. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that it's in our human nature to have a religious devotion to something. And no one is immune from this that I've ever met. Uh, I could be convinced that one or two people, extraordinary people throughout history, might not fall into this category. But that wouldn't necessarily mean they're very good people or bad people. It's just one of those things where I just haven't seen an example of it. So let me explain what I'm, why I'm focusing on this. Because what we've seen in America in the last two years is some very, very stark examples of the proving the point that there's no such thing as a non-religious person. And the biggest example comes from our politics. You know, a, a question that people ask me very, very often is, why are the, the Democrats, why are Hillary Clinton supporters, why are people who didn't vote for President Trump, why are so many of them so very, very upset about the election result? We can all understand that they're disappointed, We can all understand that some of them might even be angry for a few weeks or two or so. But the question that people ask me, like, why has this been going on for so long? I mean, even after, for example, President George W. Bush won the 2000 election. And we all know how that went down with, uh, you know, several weeks and I guess it was a couple of months we had to wait for a final resolution on that one. I guess it was about six weeks before they finally certified the election in Florida and gave it to George W. Bush. Now, that's opposed to President Trump's victory, which, despite not winning the popular vote because of states like California and New York just running up huge numbers for Hillary Clinton, the Electoral College number was was very clear that he had won. So, you know, we didn't really have any doubt once the, you know, the early morning hours started to roll in. And yet, we still have a much more angry, enduring, and really just in some ways just kind of hysterical re- response to, to, the, to his election. And that's before he even took office. So you can't really say, oh, it's about this policy or that policy. Which, by the way, almost no one, almost no one who really gets bent out of shape about President Trump in public 
ever really talks about any one of the policies. They'll talk about something that he said. They'll talk about something that they believe is true about him. But, for example, you know, really the most significant piece of legislation that's been passed since President Trump was elected was, for example, the tax cuts, the, the, the big corporate tax cuts and individual tax cuts as well of 2017. And if you ask a Democrat or someone who really doesn't like President Trump about those tax cut, um, those tax cuts and that tax cut bill that he signed and, and he pushed through, um, they'll they'll criticize it. I'm not saying they won't criticize it. A lot of them will, and a lot of them will go into detail about it. But that's not something that comes to them naturally. They have to be sort of specifically asked about it. When they'll say what they, why they're so upset about President Trump, they'll say, he says this, he is a racist, he's some... They won't talk about something that it's actually been done, other than something that he said, if you, if you count that as an action. So, this is just a, another way of, of really making it clear that we're talking about a very, very spirited, long, long-standing now, and incredibly enduring, just, just anger and... and Bent out, people being bent out of shape about President Trump being elected. And people ask me about that. They say, listen, I, I remember the George W. Bush election, and people got really upset about that and the recount in Florida and all that. But they got over it pretty quickly. Um, you know, a couple of months into President Bush, Bush's first term, you, you just didn't see, you didn't see protests in the street. You didn't see people going crazy like that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other examples of this. I, I know a lot of people were not happy, even in, in landslide election results, like when President Reagan was reelected or when President Nixon was reelected. You didn't see, there were still a lot of people who were very, very upset about it, but there was just not that kind of communal anger and, and uh, you know, a freak out. I mean, there's not really no way to say it, a freak out that is continuing over President Trump, um, really to this day, as if, as if the election were yesterday. And of course, we had the midterm elections almost yesterday, just a, less than a week ago. And we're seeing, uh, leading up to that, we saw a lot of, lot of spirited reactions. Uh, of course, the midterm elections in a couple of states are not quite over yet because we again have recounts going on in Florida. We have questions about the voting in Arizona. That's going to go on for a while. But again, not with the same national fervor for obvious reasons because that's a midterm election, not a presidential election. And you know... Further, they'll ask me, they'll say, look, I can understand that people don't like President Trump personally, but why are they not feeling some solace in the improved economy? The economy has improved greatly. And the, the overall economic analysis is that despite what you hear some people saying in the punditry world, that a, a big part of this economic improvement that we've had over the last two years now is because of, of President Trump, because of the President Trump's policies. Now, it may not last. It doesn't necessarily benefit every single person in the country. No economic policy really can do that. But even a lot of, I, I even a lot of Democrats who are economists who are not afflicted with any kind of hysteria over things and can really just look at things ob somewhat objectively are saying that yeah, listen, there's no denying that the Trump economic policies are helping a lot of aspects of the economy. Again, not everyone, but it's it's impossible for that to happen. And within the Jewish community, there are a lot of Zionist Jews who are crazy angry at President Trump, really don't like him, who don't seem to take solace in what is clearly an incredibly pro-Israel administration. So you have Zionist Jews who support Israel, who are still not happy 
who are unable to find relief or solace in the president's pro-Israel policies. And it goes well beyond the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, which I've talked about in previous installments of Novak now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I've talked about it, and I've talked about the significance of it, and I do think it's important, and I do think it's incredibly good news. But I actually think the pro-Israel policies of the Trump administration go much further than moving the embassy. Now, the moving the embassy, just to reiterate very quickly what, I, what I've said about it in the past, moving the embassy is very important because in the Middle East, it has almost always been successful. It has almost always been successful when the United States has made it very, very clear that certain things are going to stay the way they are no matter what. They cannot be negotiated away. You know, one of the biggest problems that, the, that has kept the Arab-Israeli conflict going is that the Arab countries and the Arab people have been convinced by their leaders for years that all they need to do is wait a little bit longer and they'll get rid of those Jews in Israel. And the Israelis do well when they make a statement and their most important ally in the United States makes a statement, and by, more, and by statement I mean they actually do something that, that, that resonates when they make the statement, when they do something, that makes it clear they're not going anywhere. So, of course, the most significant, still, the most significant peace deal in Middle Eastern history remains, modern Middle Eastern history remains the Arab, the, the Israeli-Egypt peace treaty, uh, negotiated in 1978 and signed in 1979. That still remains the most significant agreement. And, of course, the, the, that was created because of Israel's victory in the Yom Kippur War. And it wasn't just an Israeli victory. It was an Israeli victory backed by the United States when the United States resupplied the Israeli military in the middle of that conflict. And it sent to Anwar Sadat a very clear message that, one, his military wasn't, able, wasn't strong enough to defeat the Israelis one-on-one. And even if it were, the United States was still going to support Israel no matter what. So he realized, you know, it's time to look for peace. Didn't mean he loved the Israeli people. Didn't mean he was not willing to continue shenanigans for the Palestinians, which he did. For those of you who remember, in in those brief two years or two and a half years in between the signing of the peace treaty in March of 1979 and his assassination in September, I believe it was, 1981. I know it was September or October 1981. uh, You know, Anwar Sadat started speaking out on behalf of bogus Palestinian causes. Uh, and bogus Palestinian claims to Israeli land. He did. He did that on a number of occasions. Um, And yet, for the most part, though, he never truly threatened to pull out of the peace deal. And Hosni Mubarak, his his successor, never really did either, even though there were a lot of periods in his presidency, in his dictatorship presidency, where things weren't so great between Israel and Egypt. Anyway. These are examples, though, of things that happen when Israel, Israel makes a statement, and the United States makes a statement, either in war or in politics or both. And the, Israeli, the move of the, of, of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem is one of those things. It really makes something very, very clear to the rest of the Arab world, and I think that's very, very good. But I think that's really not the most important thing that the Trump administration has done that's really helped Israel. They've just made it very clear that they're not playing any of the political correctness game with the Palestinians. They've already pulled a lot of funding from Palestinian, so-called Palestinian authority causes, which we all know end up getting funneled either to terrorists or into the pockets of the, of, of the politicians in the Palestinian authority. And they've just made it clear that they just don't care. They just don't care if the Palestinians go on some kind of a protest 
to Europe or other or the UN and say the United States isn't being friendly to us. An outgoing U.S. ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, has also been very, very positive. Again, that's, that, this is a topic for an entire different uh, program here on Novak now, a different installment. But the point being that there are so many is, Zionist Jews who are unable to take any relief or solace in the extremely pro-Israel, positively pro-Israel Trump administration policies because they're so bent out of shape about Donald Trump himself. So again, I get that question a lot, both from Jews and from non-Jews. Why is it that there are so many Jews who just can't take any relief, even Jews who are Zionists, in anything President Trump does? And why is it that there are so many people all across the country who just can't take a break from this full-on anti-Trump feelings that they have and discomfort and hysteria and anger? And as I kind of hinted to you at the beginning of the program, the beginning of this half hour, the answer is the same. The answer is there's no such thing as a non-religious person. And why is that the answer to this question? It's the answer to the question because politics in America is very, very much, for many, many people, a religion. And let me explain what I mean by that and why that is the answer to this particular question. Religion, I think, if you really want to fairly define it from a point of view that everyone who is somewhat calm can agree, whether you're a person who believes in an established religion, if you're a member of, you know, if you're, if you're a devout Jew or a devout Christian or devout Muslim or even not that devout, just someone who is a believing member of those religions or any of the major established religions that began in ancient times, then I think you can agree that there is an aspect, a major important part of your relig- of religion is faith, faith that is not based on documented science. In other words, people who believe in God and truly believe in God understand that there's no way for, the, for a scientist to really do a test that's going to prove one way or the other whether or not there's a God. There's a, there's a faith aspect to religion, which is a holy and sacred part of most religions. We have to have some faith. Now, there are some religions that place faith over everything else. I would argue that Christianity comes really close to that, if not altogether. Kind of puts faith above almost everything else. And that's fine. That's, that's, their, that's the way the Christians sort of handle themselves. There's a lot of that in Islam as well. Judaism, at least, until, at least since the destruction of the temple, has put faith pretty high on the list. But actions and study are, are kind of not only equal, but in a lot of cases, they trump, no pun intended, they trump faith. In other words, it's okay to have a lot of doubts, it's okay to have a lot of questions, but if you remain following the commandments of the Torah and you continue to study Torah and things like that, then you're okay. You're okay. It's more, that's, that's really more important, which is understandable after the destruction of the temple and all the miseries that, that started to befall the Jewish people, especially in exile, Faith is, that's a tough one. If all you're selling is faith, you better have something better than that because there's a lot of, you know, bad news going on for a lot of, for for Jews at almost any moment throughout history for the last 2,000 years and and more, frankly. But politics shouldn't be one of those things where faith is a major caveat, but it is. It has become that. It has become that in a big way. When you talk to people and they give you honest answers, and this is rare, 
especially among very educated people who get very defensive about why they support particular parties or candidates. But if you talk to them and they give you an honest answer about why they voted for a particular person, again, if they give you an honest answer, why they voted for a particular person or why they continue to vote for a particular political party in this country, their answers really sound like religious people's answers. I personally like something about this particular candidate. This candidate resonated something in my heart. You know, think about some of the quotes for people like Chris Matthews from MSNBC's Hardball talking about how when he heard Obama speaking, he got a little tingle in his legs. I mean, that sounds like someone who's talking about a preacher or a rabbi giving a big sermon or, you know, maybe a prophet. You know, the United States compared to, for example, Europe is still a much more religious country than Western Europe, but we're getting less religious. Every, every survey, every study shows it. Fewer and fewer Americans are affiliated with the church, a synagogue, or, or, or a mosque. I, I mean, I, I don't know how much they've polled the, the, the Muslim community, but certainly the Christian and Jewish communities in this country are dwindling as far as having practicing members, affiliated members. We feel it very strongly in the Jewish community. Again, not so much in the Orthodox community. But even here in New York, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that Reform and conservative synagogues are closing in New York. Now, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, most of that time in the American South, we were keenly aware of the fact that the Jewish communities in some of these southern cities and southern parts of the country were getting smaller. We were keenly aware of that. Um, But they were still relatively strong in their identity. And, you know, it was one of those things where history had sort of worked against them. You know, at the time of the Civil War, or years leading up to the Civil War, there were almost as many Jews in the South as there were in the North. That's something that might surprise you. Port cities that were abundant in the South, like Charleston and Mobile and Norfolk, Virginia, and places like that, had a lot of Jews, just like New York and Philadelphia had a lot of Jews. Port cities were a, a major hub for Jewish communities, for obvious reasons. And there were plenty of them in the South, and that was how people got goods and services back then, before the airplanes and the trains and things like that. So, yes, there were trains before the Civil War, but not a transcontinental railroad or or major railroad networks like we had after the war. So, the point being that shipping and port cities and, and marketplaces that were set up in port cities attracted a lot of Jews who were still blocked from the farming kind of industry, still blocked from a lot of the guilds, people, you know, a lot of people who wonder, both from, from anti-Semites onto more favorable people often ask, you know, why are the Jews always involved in banking and in, in merchandising and things like that? Well, that, that was the only industries, those are the only industries they weren't blocked from, from joining. You know, they couldn't, a lot of nations wouldn't let them own land, so farming was out, big time farming was out. I mean, I guess you were allowed to own some small plot of land if you could afford it. The guilds, like, you know, being a blacksmith or some of these other kind of artisan guilds were blocked, blocked Jews. So banking and, and setting up, you know, going from peddling to maybe setting up a small shop somewhere and creating a marketplace for raw goods that were coming in from either forestry or from the shipping industries were the kinds of things that Jews could do. So they were attracted to these kinds of cities for obvious reasons, for those obvious reasons. The point being that you have a certain situation in this country where you had a decent amount of Jews living in the South before the Civil War, and then it started to dwindle, dwindle, dwindle. So I grew up in that kind of atmosphere. But we always thought that New York was safe, safe from all of that kind of thing. 
And now we're seeing that the conservative and reform synagogues in the New York area, New York City area, I mean, I'm talking about Long Island, I'm talking about Queens, which is, of course, part of the five boroughs of New York City, New Jersey, Westchester, you're seeing conservative and reform synagogues closing. Closing. Not mine, not many others that I'm sure you, you, you might know about, but they're closing. The, and that's just one example of the dwindling amount of established religion membership in this country. But I would argue that a big substitute, because there's no such thing as a non-religious person, a huge substitute for established religion is politics in America. And that is why people are acting as if they are religiously connected to politics, because it has become a, a substitute for it. Again, I believe that because no one is really a non-religious person, they're going to find a religion somewhere. There are a number of substitutes for established religion that humans... <laughs> take up. I think the number one substitute is kind of narcissism, right? You, you end up worshiping yourself. You end up caring only about yourself, or maybe, if you're lucky, maybe your family. And you, and you extend beyond that. But politics has got to be a close number two to that, is in, on the list of, of, of substitutes for established religion. And because of that, you have hysterics from, in this case, the left and Democrats in general over the election and continued presidency of Donald Trump. Now, it's one thing to lose an election, and that's a bummer. I think we, those of us who follow politics, if you follow politics for anything more than a few years, you've been there. You know what it's like to lose an election and have your side lose. Although I would say the word side is already kind of disturbing if you consider an entire political party in America to be your, quote, side. But for the argument's sake, we know what that feels like. But it's another thing entirely. For example, imagine someone coming into your synagogue and trashing the place. Again, in, in light of the shootings in Pittsburgh, I don't want to get involved in something even more something bringing up an example even even more disturbing than that. But just think about that for a second here, and how disappointed you'd be, and how upset you'd be for for really ever about something like that. And it'd be very hard to move on. Or if every time you walked by, you still saw that. Something had happened there. Some, some, someone had come in and defiled your house of worship. And I think that because so many people in America have traded an established religion for politics, they are feeling like every day they're walking past anyone, every time they open up a newspaper or read a, a website or follow the news, it's almost as if they're walking by their church or their synagogue and seeing it defiled again and again and again because their side isn't in charge. I mean, we've come full circle in some ways, in human civilization. I hope we don't go completely on this, but we're getting there to the point where if you remember your history, in, in, the, ancient, in the ancient world, when wars would go on between, for example, city-states, it wasn't just a war between the two armies. It was a war, but, you know, the people believed that it was also a war between the gods of one particular city-state and the gods of another. And when one city-state won over the other, they believed that someone's god had been defeated. So it was pretty, it was pretty devastating, <laughs> to say the least. And sadly, I think we're getting to that place again. I think we're getting to that place again. If you look really, really closely beyond the personality traits of Donald Trump, which may bother you, and I can understand why, I get it. Beyond the things that he says that bother you. If you look really, really closely at the policies, you may like them and you may dislike them. But you cannot argue objectively that these policies are some kind of massive, massive threat to everything 
that the country stands for. For You can't say they're any more radical than... There's nothing, for example, that President Trump has done that's any more radical in far as the change it could be, you know, it could affect than Obamacare, for example. Example, And even if you like Obamacare or dislike it, it doesn't matter. You have to admit it's a much more effective, affecting policy. I'm not saying effective. I, I don't believe Obamacare has, is going to do anything or has done anything to really improve the situation of health costs in this country. Again, that would be a, a topic for an entirely different <laughs> installment of Novak now. But the point is that if you really look at the policies, at the things that have actually been done, not said, not implied, not tweeted, but done, there's nothing that much to get upset about, one way or the other. There just isn't. But, again, if politics is your religion, or darn close to your religion, and another god is sitting on the throne of the country, then every day is, is a torture and a pain. Every day is your Tishabuff. And this is where we've gone to in America. It's just, by the way, one of the negative results of the de-religious nature, de-religious, the, the loss of religion in this country. And again, I don't think everyone must be a member of an established religion. And if you are a member of that religion, I'm not saying you have to be a devout person. That's, that's up to you. That's a personal choice. And that's up to your particular, particular beliefs. But I will say... I will say that this generation seems to be completely lost in a lot of ways when it comes to understanding some of the hard-earned truths of civilization over the last couple of thousands of years that maybe they've forgotten because people aren't telling them. There are some boring, I think you could probably call them boring, but established truths about society that we've learned over the last two, three, four, five thousand years. For example, things like marriage. Marriage, it's, it's really one of the things that for, for almost everyone is an essential to happiness. Now, I'm a little bit more forward-thinking. I wouldn't say forward-thinking because that'll, that'll uh, insult people who think that, that, that they're, they're, they're not behind the times, so I'm not going to say that. I'm a little bit more understanding about the definition of marriage. I believe that two adults, whether they're gay, straight, whatever, it's better for them to be married if they're in a relationship. If they're already in a relationship, they should be married and there should be a commitment between the two of them. I believe in the rearing of children by a father and a mother, or at least two parents, two adult parents. These are all things that actually, now you stand up and say this in a college classroom or even maybe even somewhere in a, in a major city and they'll call you, you know, a hateful race, racist backwards jerk. But I think that marriage is something that keeps civilization going. I think the rearing of children by two parents is something that keeps civilization going. I, I, again, I don't have to think this. We've known this for t- thousands of years that this is how it works, that the, the alternative is chaos. And yes, I believe... Being a member of an established religion and, for example, going to services regularly, it's been shown in study after study, it's a way to continue to be happy. It's a way that the people who do that tend to be wealthier than those who don't. In other words, this is, it sounds really kind of petty to say that this is something that will make you wealthy and happy, but, you know, the, the, the studies don't lie. And thousands of years of history don't lie. So, 
it's not just Donald Trump that's going to make you unhappy if politics is your religion, because if politics are your conservative or pro-Trump religion, you know, I guess Donald Trump certainly doesn't make you unhappy. But politics will make you a lot less happy if that's your religion than the established religions out there. And we're seeing it every single day in the religious level hysteria over Donald Trump's election. Don't forget, folks, there's no such thing as a non-religious person. That includes you, that includes me, and it's up to you to decide which religion you want to be devoted to and which one will actually bring you that kind of peace and happiness that we're all looking for. This has been Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.